Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys and gals and non-binary pals? It's me, ZDogMD, Dr. Z, Zubin Demania, Zendog, all the things. It's like 2.48, April 21st. We missed 4.20. I did a 4.20 show for my supporters without the chronic involved, but today's 4.21. And I just thought I felt like going live to y'all. I felt like putting on a shirt and widening the shot a bit, getting my homie here, Elephant and Rider, in the shot and taking your questions, comments, because there's always something to talk about, right? There's everybody. Hey, buddy, says Tide Romero. Any, anyone says, hey, buddy, I always hear it in an Indian accent because that was like the staff lounge at this community hospital I used to work at. Every single physician was Indian, including me, of, of South Asian descent. And uh, it was always like, hey, buddy, I was wondering if you could see the uh, guy in 12. He's got a little bit of a you know, GI bleed, just hoping you could write a, you know, pop a quick note, chief. What do you think, buddy? So it was always like that. Um, Justin says racism. It's not racism if it's your own people. Uh, or is it? Great to see you too, Thomas. Hey, buddy, Kali Pusa. <laughs> um, let me pop out the comments and get it in a separate module here so that they're easier to stream. Uh, and then we'll... Um, We'll kick it old school. Papillon, Nebraska's in the house with Michelle. I love the Midwest. I really do. Ah, damn it. It's that stupid sound again. Hold on. Let me fix that. I think I do that and it kills it because you guys are kindly sending stars. Can you help me understand why docs talk poorly about nurse practitioners? Deb Bykowski. Oh man, you're going right for the, like, let's get Z-Dog canceled by somebody early in the, in the cast. Let's do this. Why do some doctors talk poorly about nurse practitioners? This is a complex issue because it has to do with a million things. And I've done shows about this, but here's my best take on this. In an ideal world, we're all on a team, everybody practicing at the top of their training and abilities in service of the patient and each other, right? Now, with the nurse practitioner physician thing, this has been a long time coming and there's a few forces at play. One is... Physicians who are already kind of beleaguered and feel that their um, general level of support and respect, et cetera, is being eroded by the administrative class, which has been happening for a few decades now, 
um, are now met with a situation where a nurse practitioner can theoretically get an online degree, not have the 10,000 hours of you know clinical experience or whatever that physicians get during residency and all that subtle training. And then they can be replaced with this nurse practitioner, uh, particularly if the laws change and they say that the nurse practitioners don't require supervision or can practice independently. At the same time, they're often being compelled to supervise nurse practitioners in an already busy practice by administrators who want to save money because nurse practitioners get paid less. So the physician angle too is that the nurse practitioner may be great for certain things, but subtle things that require all that extra training can be missed and therefore it's also a patient safety issue. Um, and then it, you know, it can reflect on the license of the supervising physician et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the sort of party line feeling among the doctors who are hesitant about nurse practitioners, but there's more to it than that. There's actually the subtleties of um, a kind of a culture of hierarchical bullying that happens on all sides of this. And in some cases, it's nurses that during training were bullying physicians and now those same nurses want parity with physicians. And so there's this kind of weird kind of butt hurt that goes on. Um, and there are other issues too. Uh, and again, having to do with with you know not knowing what you don't know and so on and so forth and, and so on. So that's the sort of ascertainment. Now, how do some physicians behave about this uh, awfully? So they end up you know, bullying and demeaning and belittling. And like anybody, there's a broad range of abilities with nurse practitioners, with doctors, with PAs, with everybody. That's just how it is. It's a broad range of, of capability, depending on where you train, who you are, how diligent you are, your own aptitudes, how seriously you take the whole thing and all of that. So there's no single one right answer. You don't just, you know, put a peg in a hole, it's not like that. So there is this conflict over turf, let's be honest, here's the undercurrent, money. So if nurse practitioners take some of the physician's cases that aren't as complex, it's harder for that physician, now they have to see more complex cases, they don't necessarily get paid more, um, and so it's eating into their livelihood. Some have been replaced by nurse practitioners in settings like ER and that sort of thing, and they don't feel that that's correct. And so there's this whole political thing, right? Now, it's not all physicians who feel that way. And many who work on teams with nurse practitioners are super jazzed about nurse practitioners. I happen to be one of them because they come with a different angle, right? They're trained in the nursing angle. Uh, they see things that doctors may not connect with. And doctors do the very high level complex intuitive care that only people who are trained as doctors are really able to do because they have that breadth and, and just straight volume of training that um, some nurse practitioners won't have. So it's actually a very complex thing. My feeling is, hey, everybody has a place on a team taking care of patients and everyone should practice at the top of their training within the parameters of the law. But what that means depends on, it's not just training, but ability. Looking at that, there are some doctors who I wouldn't let touch my dog because they're just shitty doctors. And the same goes with nurse practitioners, the same goes with anybody. So there isn't a simple brush that you can paint it all with, but that's the nature of the conflict, right? It's not um, inexplicable, there's a reason for it, right? So I have always basically said, we should support everybody in healthcare who's trying to do the right thing and we should support each other together. But it's always gonna be somewhat factionalized. Now, just, take, just look, look just within medicine, 
Within medicine, meaning within doctors, within M MDs and DOs, there's so much infighting. That's why doctors don't unionize typically because they all hate each other. Not, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying? The primary care docs resent the specialists. The specialists look down on the primary care docs. Everybody thinks psych is crazy. <laughs> and and it just, it, it's been this kind of, and, and some of it has to do with money. Some of it has to do with turf. Some of it has to do with work. Some of it has to do with prestige and respect and so on. And ever since we took away doctor's lounges and we put everyone behind a computer and nobody talks to each other anymore, it's only gotten worse. And then you tell everyone, oh no, you're all part of a team, but well, that's just words. If people aren't acculturated and connected to actually behave like they're all part of a team. So I don't know, that's my off the cuff thinking on, on that. Um, Nurse practitioners tend to listen better and provide more compassion and empathy for patients. They're trained to be advocates for patients, Grace Lewis. So I don't know that that's true. I think that's a very reductionist way to look at it. Now, there may be in the training more of the nursing model, right? So we all know doctors that have terrible bedside manners and we all know nurses that are assholes. So it's hard to reduce it all that. So sometimes you see like these memes go around, like what is it? Um, you know, nurse practitioner, like heart of a nurse, brain of a doctor or something like that. It's like, what does that even mean? So I don't know, those things are vaguely upsetting to me because I just don't think that there's a one size fits all. Now you'll see like, and I've talked about this, I've gotten canceled by doctors for defending, like attacking bullying, like the kind of bullying that goes on online. And the doctors are well, the nurses bully us. It's like, dude, there's always gonna be a power differential. And it used to be doctors were on the top of the power differential. Now, the people on the top of the power differential have never touched a patient. They're called administrators. So everything is shit. We better get along or they're going to drive this into a business model that is gonna destroy, it's already happening, you see it. Health 2.0, the outcome of an unmitigated Health 2.0 is this, is just a, 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 a commodification, infighting, all that. 3.0 has to emerge which says, yes, the relationship is important. Yes, your training is important, but also a team is important. Helping everybody to grow within the growth hierarchy rather than a dominator hierarchy where somebody's in charge and they dominate everyone else. Instead, it's a growth hierarchy. It's like, oh, you're really good at listening and compassion. Okay, great. Then you're gonna fulfill these roles and you're gonna grow into that and you're gonna play to your strengths. And you're really good at more analytical, um, you know, surgical type thinking. Great. Then you're gonna be doing this better and grow into that. And you're gonna work on your weaknesses, but you're not gonna focus on that. You're gonna really focus on your strengths. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it could be a nurse doing that, could be a doctor doing that, but that would be the idea is we're playing to people's aptitudes, right? And that requires leadership, not management. That, that's the difference. Thanks for the stars, Patty. Um, assholes are running the hospital, Susan Woodruff. I think there's some truth to that, but I think there's also the truth that there are also really good people trying to do the right thing in hospitals and we um, should celebrate when those things work, right? I think it's very important. Everyone tip a hundred stars to Buddy, says Jimmy. Hey, Buddy. Um, as a nurse, I believe there's room for all types of providers and I agree 100% that a team approach will improve outcomes. Yes, I agree. I've seen it work and continue to work in our you know uh, um, in our pilot practice at turntable health we had nurses doctors pharmacists health coaches now think about this think about a hierarchy there health coaches may be nobody they may not have any medical background they're drawn from the community they're hired for their empathy their ability to connect they're trained in motivational interviewing and they're part of the team and they're grown so some of them ended up going into nursing school 
right? One of them I think went into, uh, became a PA, one became a doctor. Like it, it's a kind of growth avenue, but you start as a health coach and that means connecting with the patients, doing the blocking and tackling and heavy lifting of developing a relationship, then the doctor or the nurse practitioner or the PA or the pharmacist or whoever comes in and takes that piece of it, the licensed clinical social worker to do the behavioral health stuff. Um, and it's all a team and you huddle every morning to talk about patients who are coming in. You also talk about patients who aren't coming in that you're worried about that are on your panel that you're concerned about. You wanna keep them out of the hospital. That's preventative care, that's health 3.0. And it's all paid for with, in our case, it was a flat capitated fee to, to manage a population. And the goal would be that if you did well, you could save some of the savings that the patients generated by being healthy. So that's where everything starts to align, right? Um, how do you maintain that hairstyle, uh, Justin Swain? Now that's the kind of question I can really dig my teeth into. So I use a um, electric razor that has these four, I'm not gonna say the name of it because they used to sponsor my show and then they became assholes. So I stopped talking about them, but they, <laughs> they, um, it, it, it's a, and you just kind of run it like this. And I do it like maybe QOD or so every other day. And it keeps the head uh, shiny smooth. I, I used it this morning. Um, the toxicity of the CCU tore me down in two and a half years I left nursing. Nurses looking for any reason to criticize a nurse that didn't fit into their high school like click. So Kimberly, you think clicks are only in nursing. Well, they're definitely common in nursing. And I'm gonna say this, and it's super sexist. It's super sexist, but I think there's an element of truth. Women in general and girls in particular are really, their form of violence is relational violence. It's reputational violence. It's gossipy violence, more so. This has actually been looked at. Jonathan Haidt wrote about it in The Coddling of the American Mind. Whereas men tend to be more overtly aggressive and banging on their man boobs and all that. Again, I'm stereotyping and it is absolutely occasionally okay to do that because the nursing profession is still a roughly 90% female. You may get an element of that more in nursing, but I will say that when I entered medical school, it felt so clickish to me, I wanted to quit. Uh, it was basically like high school and this was 50-50 male females, right? Actually, maybe we had a little more men uh, back in the 90s, but it was still pretty split. So I don't think it's the domain of uh, women in general. And then, um, so there's a gender dynamic, there's a social dynamic, and then there's just culture. Like, you know, the whole nurses eat their young thing and all that that you hear. I, I ran into a nurse at um, the grocery store the other day, a local nurse who recognized me and we were talking, we did a little selfie and stuff. And they, you know, they're going on strike um, here at Sutter and Stanford hospitals and so on. And I asked her, I said, so what's the fundamental problem like what's the fundamental problem you see that you guys are striking for? Because get just get cut through all the jazz and tell me what is the heart of it? And she said, staffing. She said, it's not safe the way that we're staffed. Like the money is one thing. Like we get, I mean, they actually get paid pretty well in the Bay Area, not for the cost of living, but relative to nurses around the rest of the country because they're unionized here. But the staffing is still crap for all the reasons. The like pandemic took people out, people retired. It's very hard and expensive to get travel nurses. Uh, it's competitive. Um, uh, it's a shitty job because they let patients beat you up and nobody takes legal action. So the safety is, she said, it, it's safety for the nurses and staffing, which is safety for patients and nurses. And I said, okay. There you go. So there's a cultural component there, and you know, there's there's a ton of stuff that needs to be worked out. Um, girls hold grudges, guys fight and forget about it the next day. Debbie Castle, I, I, that's a little reductionist because <laughs> I hold grudges, 
but I'm, I'm, I have a lot of, uh, feminine aspect to me. Don't, don't tell anyone I said that. Wait, we're live to how many people? Um, 700. That's just a small auditorium. What could possibly go wrong? Um, Grace Volney Z, I'm a diabetic. Wanted to know if you've heard of L-citrulline and you think it's a good supplement to, I have no idea. No idea. I can't answer that. Sorry. I have to point blank say when I don't know something at all. I I could make some shit up for you, but what good will that do you? None. It will only get you in trouble. By the way, nothing I ever say on the show is individual medical advice. I can't and don't do that. This is all entertainment and education, but not personal medical advice. Um, DAs choose their cases, not your CEO, says Amy Simmons. That's important, but there is a culture at hospitals where they don't want uh, a visible security presence. They may not put up signs saying, hey, if you touch a uh, touch one of our providers, we'll, we'll throw you in jail because, you know, you want it to feel like a hotel. You want it to feel welcoming. They don't have that stuff in hotels. So there is a component culturally that leadership does set. Now you're right, they don't choose the cases, but they can support or unsupport you. And we hear from nurses all the time that got their ass kicked by a patient, pregnant women who got got kicked in the stomach, men, ner male nurses who got you know neck injuries, permanent disability, and um, administration was like, you know, the patient was not in their right mind. Just you know, let it go and won't support. So it is, it's a big, um, it, it's a big thing that needs to be worked on. We also need to set some precedents that if you're in your right mind and it's, it's often family too, because everybody's all stressed because of pandemic, everybody's behaving like an asshole. If you touch one of our caregivers in the hospital, you'll go to jail. I don't care if you're in traction, right? Have a zero tolerance policy for that. Um, and that requires some courageous leadership. Z, always embrace the feminine side of your mind, my friend, in psychology, both are vital regardless of genitalia. <laughs> Stefan, uh, yes, actually I, I try to uh, as much as I can uh, be emotionally in touch, but uh, that a lot of that is meditation and trying to grow yourself and so on. And, and um, that means not repressing emotion, but trying to actually feel it and embody it and you know let it be and actually look into your mind and see when you're being reactive and being an asshole and so on. And, and my wife is very good at calling me on my bullshit. So then I, I usually have to stop and be like, ah, she's right. I'm behaving like an asshole dude or you know whatever it is. Um, how do you feel about Jordan Peterson, Justin? So I think Peterson is, pretty remarkable, very smart guy. I think he struggles a lot with substance abuse in a way that you're not hearing. Um, beyond the whole, you know, he was hospitalized for benzo, um, <clears throat> a benzo withdrawal and all of that. But the thing is, dude, like those are serious medications that cause serious problems. I think he's getting better, which is wonderful to see. But his message is absolutely um, a message that should be heard. I think it's very powerful. It's very well thought out. It's not perfect. There's, you know, blind spots there, but that's everybody. So I like Jordan Peterson a lot. Couldn't get through, you know, 10 ways to be a man or whatever his book was, but um, I've seen a few of his videos and there are some of his videos where he's just lecturing off the top, off the cuff and he's gotten into a flow state and he's talking about whatever the divine spirituality and this and that and the human this and that. And, and you're just like, holy shit, this guy is unbelievable. Like he's channeling the, he's opening a hole in the universe and just wisdom is coming out. Like he really does that. Leslie says, many of us in Canada adore Peterson. He is a national treasure in my opinion. Um, 
Let's see. I was verbally assaulted and threatened just yesterday, says Lori. Uh, patients and family screaming profanity, profanities, threatening to take my uh, license away, shut the whole hospital down. This was an easy day. Yeah. Now remember, they're having the worst day of their life or whatever. They've been conditioned by shitty lockdowns and isolation and uh, 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 normalization of verbal and physical violence in society to behave this way so we can have compassion. But at the same time, what about us? What about the people who have to deal with that? It's mostly nurses because they're in the patient's face all the time. And um, it's really unacceptable. I mean, it has to change. We've done videos and videos and videos on this. And the stories are heartbreaking, right? Um, now, our system does violence to patients. We do violence to patients' pocketbooks. We give them surprise bills. We do unnecessary tests because we're paid to do them and we're conditioned to do them. We don't do it maliciously, but it's part of the system. So we do violence to patients. Oh, believe we do. Um, but that's no excuse for physical violence. And that's often not the reason. There's something else. They're not heard. Uh, there's substance abuse. There's, uh, you know, whatever it is. There's a million reasons patients get violent or their families get violence but that doesn't excuse any of it. Um, compassionate care with boundaries is crucial, says Tina. There you go. Um, my husband's a cop and takes crazy people to the hospital all the time. Sucks for him, but sucks more for the hospital staff that are stuck with them. Sophie B, yeah. And I, I feel, actually feel for law enforcement because they're in a tough situation too. And yeah, they're problem cops for sure. And I'm sympathetic to all sides on that whole discussion. But law enforcement, when I do videos on moral injury, or I do videos on the, the nurse who was arrested for the mistake or convicted for the mistake, Redonda Vaught, I get a lot of emails from law enforcement people who say, dude, welcome to our world. It's like this all the time. We're trying our best. Most of us, there's some bad seeds for sure. <clears throat> but but by the grace of God, you make a mistake and somebody gets hurt and you go to jail and your life is over and it's a mistake, right? Um, Michelle says, I retired after 35 years of being a nurse. I love being a nurse, but I wouldn't go back now. So a lot of people, it's really interesting, um, this idea of, you know, should you stop? So I was just meeting with an ex-colleague and, um, you know, the question was, is it time to stop? Because things are getting worse. The patients are getting, you know, patients and families are getting more belligerent. Um, you know, pay is eroding, teamwork is eroding, the EHR sucks, everything, all the usual stuff. And they asked me, hey, so when you left full-time clinical medicine to be, you know, to, to do what you're doing, your advocacy work and education and that kind of thing, did you, you know, did you regret it? Do you feel bad about it? Are you um, uh, nervous about your future? Like all, all the, the questions that somebody who's in that space would ask and, 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 and that I asked in 2012 when I left Stanford. I was asking myself this, like, well, they keep telling me this is the best job I'll ever have in hospital medicine. They keep telling me that if you leave, you won't be able to come back. They keep telling me that all the other jobs are harder and worse and you won't get a team like this and uh, the support that you get and, the, and on and on and on. And I remember at the time going, you know, maybe they're right. Like maybe I shouldn't try this thing to go move to Vegas and try to start a clinic and try to change healthcare. I mean, I'm, who am I? I'm delusional. I'm, 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 I'm insane. All I know is I'm unhappy in my job. This is not sustainable. I'm burning out. I'm morally injured at the time. I didn't know what moral injury was. I just, I just knew that I couldn't continue to do this in good conscience, but they made me feel, not my colleagues, but like, you know, <laughs> that organization makes you feel like, oh, you're lucky to be here. And, uh, you know, good luck doing what you're trying to do. Now, some of them are very supportive, but it is this kind of golden handcuffs too, because you have mortgages and you have all this other stuff. And so at the time I was terrified. And so what I 
told this person at our meeting the other day was I looked them right in the eye and I said, I don't regret it for a second. Like I would, all I will tell you is if you're feeling it that strongly and they're telling you those things like, oh, you shouldn't leave in this and that, walk tomorrow. Don't even have a plan for what you're gonna do, just go. Because you know in your heart, you know deep in your authentic you what the answer is. And you're letting fear, you're letting that part of your mind that that physicians and nurses in particular have a huge piece of it. It's a, a, a obligation, like my colleagues, I don't wanna let them down, I don't wanna let my patients down, I don't wanna you know, let my family down, I don't wanna let, let all this training I had, I don't, I don't wanna flush it away and do something else or something related that isn't direct patient care, whatever it is, fuck that. I'm telling you right now, like if you are feeling that call that strongly, and you have some vague idea of, well, I might do this or I might do that, go do it. And yeah, that's gonna make the nursing shortage worse until we set up our system where that is the best job on the planet, where primary care physicians get, are just so happy doing what they do, even though they're working hard, you know, like they were at our, our clinic. They work hard, but they were happy. That, that, that's, such, that, that's the draw. Right, rather than ah, oh, well, I got loans and I feel bad, and oh, you know, I started and now I can't stop, and you know, what if my malpractice lapses and so on? It's like, dude, forget it. That's what it is, Lynn. It's Stockholm syndrome. That's the word I was looking for. I was going to say, it's Stockholm syndrome. You start to love and become attached to your captor, who's holding you prisoner, and I think. So many in healthcare have Stockholm syndrome. Now you guys will say, well, Z, you're lucky. You know, you had this guy who invested in you and you went and you did this thing and it didn't succeed and yet you still were doing, you still went going. And yeah. yeah, all that's true. Guess what? Life is fucking unpredictable. Like you, you have to open yourself to return on luck when that person comes that's gonna have the connection that's gonna help you do the next thing. When you're, yeah, you're gonna take risk. Yeah, you may not be doing financially well for a while. That's all okay because you're you, you're gonna be you. You're gonna be able to sleep with yourself at night and you're going to live longer because you're less stressed, you're less hypertensive, you're less likely to overeat and be diabetic and all the other stuff. You're less likely to have depression and anxiety. Oh, you'll have anxiety, definitely. That's part of taking risk, but you've got, listen, you have one, this is your life. I don't know if you have multiple lives or not, but this is your life right now. Are you gonna live it? or what? I had to ask myself this because I was not happy. I knew I wasn't living the life I was supposed to live. Um, I felt trapped and the golden handcuffs were there and I had the Stockholm syndrome. Whereas now I'm like, dude, even in just a couple years of, I mean, it took, it took three months of washout from my system before I was like, God, this is what freedom feels like? Holy crap, I could get used to this. And yeah, it's financially tricky. It really is. You take some risks. Um, hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also want to hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at ZDogMD.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you wanna be a part of this community and support the show, 
join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we gonna transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. Let's see. Thanks for the stars, Kimberly. Um, scroll it up here. A few sporting stars in Australia have died of heart attacks age 50. People are blaming boosters, et cetera. Any link to boosters or could it be due to COVID, Tanya? It could also just be that's the background rate of people who have cardiac arrest um, because <clears throat> this was actually looked at to some degree and it does not look like it's vaccine related. Now it could be COVID, but even that, I, you know, I actually think we just underestimate the background rate of cardiac events in, I mean, someone 50, I don't care how healthy and athletic they are, they could drop dead. Like, that's just how it is. Um, somebody young, that can happen. You can have an arrhythmia, you can have an undiagnosed congenital defect. Um, that was misinformation that came out actually that all these, you know, all these athletes in Europe are just young athletes, young soccer stars are dropping dead because of vaccine. They actually looked at that and like, uh, no, that, that wasn't it. Um, Due to psych facilities being full, the hospitals are having to deal with a large amount of psych patients for longer periods. I'm honestly over sitting with psych patients. Some I sympathize with, um, but I'm mo but most I'm over. I'm tired of the verbal abuse and stress. Well, Darla, I mean, you didn't sign up to, to be a psych nurse, right? So it's very difficult work that you have to kind of, it's nice to have specific training for. And um, with the crisis in the ER now, it's like they're just, everyone's backing up into the emergency department. It's a disaster. Now, what's the root cause of this? Well, our society is sick. Like I sound like some old conservative like guy. Well, our society is sick and we need to do something to get the morals back. But the truth is we're more isolated. Social media has made things worse. It's hijacked our brainstem. We we don't connect anymore. There is the f failure of community and family. There's um, all the, you know, kind of rampant pessimism and media exposure and all of that stuff. It's worse, worse with kids. So we see this crisis in teen mental health, which I just did a video on that's out on, you guys can find it on my website or on YouTube. Um, so we have to address those things, honestly. Um, <clears throat> my best friend is an ED nurse and it's killing him. I'm trying to nudge him to swap to pack you or something less mind numbing, Carol Dean. I mean, you gotta find what works for you. And it may be that working in ER works for a while and then it doesn't, and then you have to do something. But a lot of people just feel trapped and they're trapped by inertia. And um, Barbara says, pharmacists are really getting tired of the incivility too. And our boards are definitely not on our side. Under the bus is the right face. Pharmacists are treated like shit, period. They are crapped on by their employers, the CVSs and the Walgreens and all these guys. They're crapped on by their boards, which like you said, it's the same with the medical board. A great lawyer who's in our supporter tribe <clears throat> who represents doctors said this once to me, 
The medical board is not your friend. They are not your friend. They're not there to protect you. They're there to protect the consumer. And same is probably true of pharmacy boards. So you will get tossed under the bus. You have to find representation and so on. Pharmacists have been treated like crap before the, the COVID thing. And now it's worse because again, the patients are assholes because everyone's been through a lot and we've conditioned everybody. I mean, you know, look, if Will Smith can lose it at the Oscars and come up and slap a hoe, then what, what, what hope does somebody who has very little to lose have to control their impulses, right? Um, <clears throat> hi, Janine, good to see you. Um, John Malone says, I was a nurse decades ago, went into law enforcement instead because I couldn't take the pressure. Wow, nursing can be a bear. I can imagine how tough it can be uh, as an MD. I actually think it's harder on nurses, to be honest. Um, MDs have their own pressures and stresses and very high rates of suicide. And so it's hard, but in a different way. Um, yeah, it, 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 <clears throat> it really sucks. And Kim, uh, Kim says a, a respiratory therapist are used to it. I know, see, you guys have been shit on from the dawn of time. And so uh, you guys are just like, yeah, welcome to the clubhouse guys. Like, this is just how it is. Um, all of this applies to teachers, Tessa Walker. Absolutely. Like teachers are crapped on. And you know, the problem is there are some bad teachers and then they set a, uh, you know, the parents get all, you know, fidgety about those bad teachers and then the good teachers and then you have the unions and you have the whole thing and and the amount of demands on teachers for the amount of pay they get and uh, uh, again kids now attention spans and then covid ruins everything because now kids have this weird there's this absentee mentality the whole thing is a total mess thanks for the stars janine um robert says er pharmacist here I'll just say I'm glad to be retiring soon after an exhausting 30 plus year career. Thank you for your service, Robert. Inpatient pharmacy, while I think less can be less painful than in some ways than retail pharmacy is a bear. But <clears throat> without our inpatient pharmacists, I don't know. I mean, I, I would have been lost as a hospitalist. COVID and politics have screwed our country, Sonia. Well, and, and also the technology that enables COVID and politics to be weaponized, social media and media, mainstream media. So CNN, Fox, all these things, they're paid to generate division and clickbait and outrage. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, <clears throat> Rhonda says, I had to retire early from teaching. Admins didn't support the teachers and parents were abusive. Bingo. Parents are assholes. But then, you know, it's, it's funny. So parents are assholes, but then as a parent, of a middle schooler, when she comes home and tells me the, some of the stuff that like say her one teacher did, um, I'm just like, this is outrageous. Now, again, it's all filtered through the kid, right? But I don't know. I was like, I wanna go in there and like start yelling. So everybody's all emotional about this stuff because it's their kids. And the problem with this, the problem with parents these days, the problem with parents, again, on the old grumpy old man, um, the problem with parents and, and Jonathan Haidt wrote about this in The Coddling of the American Mind. Part of the problem is there's this arms race, particularly among affluent parents for college, college admissions. And so it's this game that they're playing through their children, but it's really about them. It's not about the kid. It's projection of the hopes, dreams, and fears onto the child, including the anxiety. And so these parents are insane. Um, <clears throat> they're using their kids as pawns in this game. The kid is overscheduled and has no free time, no play time, nothing. And you know, college is the biggest deal in the world. And in the end, um, none of it fucking matters. 
<laughs> let, let them play. Let them have unstructured time where they learn how to socialize, where they learn how to deal with bullies and solve conflicts and get emotional intelligence and those kind of things and have fun. You have only one childhood, dude. Come on, I've had my second childhood now though, but it, in, let them enjoy it to some degree that, that they're able to do. And uh, so parents are, you know, becoming insane. And what it's doing is it's helicoptering the kids too. So the kids are all fragile. They always need to turn to an authority figure for help instead of just handling that shit the way that we did when we were kids. We just got our ass kicked. That's just how it was. That's not entirely true. I was a coddled little bastard. Um, lab assistant from Canada says, Andrea, it's no better here. I'm 33 and I've been doing it for 10 years and I need to find something new. Dude, go be a roadie for Rush. They're not touring anymore because we got to pour a little out for Neil uh, Peart, the drummer. Gosh, favorite band of mine. Mm. Heartbroken when he died, brain tumor. Have you seen kids in Japan getting sent on errands at age five? Sylvia Knowles. Okay, so this is a great show. It's called Old Enough. It's on Netflix. It's an old Japanese show, actually. It's been around for a long time. But <clears throat> the premise is it's a reality show where they, they get like a two-year-old and they teach the kid like, hey, look, you can go to the store this way. You have these tasks. This is what you're gonna do. It was actually, I think it was like a two and a half or three-year-old kid. I, this episode I saw, it was a little boy. And so they do it and the camera crew follows this kid. And the kid has these tasks and wears a flag so that like people don't run him over and stuff. And I think the camera crews watch out for the kid. But the kid goes and does the kind of shit that you're like, dude, I can't do at age 48. I can't pull that off. And the kid's going and doing it. And they're letting the kid doing it without any supervision from the parents. And it kicks ass. And you're like, dude, this is parenting right here. Like, that's great. It may be a little extreme, but it's pretty awesome. Now, like, we're, you know, oh my God, what if they get kidnapped? What if they get run over? What if da 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 Malou says, I lived in Tokyo for three and a half years. So weigh in. I mean, our kids just running around the street doing errands. Um, I heard, I read an article that like school kids in Japan, there was like a discipline crisis. Like they were being total little butt sticks um, for a while. And like the teachers were beside themselves. I don't know what's up with that. I don't know if it's true. The difference is, ah, this is important, Malou. The difference is the village raises the child, bingo. Everybody takes responsibility for everybody. And we don't do that here. It's like, shit, turn your head. There's a kid trying to do an errand. Hopefully he doesn't get run over. Um, totally true. Um, schools in California are a joke, Sarah Day. Eh, you know, they're not great, but I'm pleasantly surprised that the public schools my kids are in, they were in private school in Las Vegas. And then they came here for public school and they're happier, I think, overall. There's a bigger diversity of students. And overall, I think they're learning not as much as I'd love to see, but then again, I have to check my own thing and go, wait, I went to public school in California. Of course, in those days, the schools were better. And I was in Clovis, California, Clovis Unified School District, Clovis West High School. That is like an outlier. And, um, and I have to think, well, I'm just projecting my own neuroticism on this kid. Like the kid's gonna learn what they need to learn to the degree that they can. And they'll go to a college, hopefully, or they'll find something they love and they'll do it. And I'm gonna work on that. I want them to do what they love to do. I want them to struggle too. I want them to be challenged. I want them to hurt a little bit. I do. I don't want them to be, have it, have it, have it easy. And, uh, you know, it's funny, my, you know, we're, you know, whatever, we, we, we do well financially. We're not, you know, rich by any means, especially in the Bay Area. We're basically, you know, upper middle class, if that, and we have a house, which is great. Um, so our assets are like, you know, our house, 
and my studio, that's about it. But, and, and whatever savings and all, I'm underplaying it. But when we talk to our kids, they think, they tell their friends that we are poor, like outright non-affluent and they feel it. Like they're like, oh, we, you know, can we afford that? Like my youngest, if I if I go like crazy at a restaurant and order a bunch of food, she's like, that's gonna be really expensive, Dad. Like, are you sure we can afford that? And I'm like, this is awesome. I love this, this frugality, like the feeling that you know what, you have to actually scrap a bit to get paid in the world, which means money is valuable because it represents your time. It represents your opportunity cost. Whatever money you made, that was time you could have been doing something else. You could have been meditating in a cave, but you you chose to you had to make money, right? So it's worth something. So that, that's kind of how, <clears throat> how, we, how we did that with them. Um, kids learn, learn, need to learn to be resilient so they can be successful, says Kenneth Johns. So I would actually argue it's not even resiliency because resiliency is you know kind of resisting change or bouncing back from trauma or whatever. They need to be anti-fragile. So that's one click further. Anti-fragility means when you get a, a challenge, within parameters, when you get a challenge, you actually get stronger from the challenge. So you actually adapt and become a better person for it. So it's not even resilient, it's anti-fragile, like beyond resilient. It's like, you know, like when you work out, you're tearing down muscle fiber, it's a challenge to your muscle, but the idea is you get swole. And I think kids could benefit from being as anti-fragile as they were born to be but we've made them fragile, not even resilient. We've made them fragile by overprotecting, overhelicoptering, overscheduling, uh, putting them on social media too young, exposing them to garbage news, um, meaning the mainstream media that just like feeds them negative news all the time. So they think the sky's falling and they're, now they're all frightened and anxious. Um, no, no snowflake disease, says Sarah. Um, Normita says, yes, anti-fragility, that's it. Read The Coddling of the American Mind by Height. It is excellent, it's outstanding. Stacy says, funny that you just brought up Neil Peart. Earlier, someone said athletes dying. Foo Fighters drummer had an enlarged heart and died at 50, saying he had athlete's heart. Others were blaming vaccination. Could this have something to do with athletes dying so young? Uh, you know, so you can overexercise and you can get cardiomyopathy from that. You can get AFib. You can get hypertrophic heart. I mean, again, there's things that can happen, but it's also just shitty luck. Now with Foo Fighters drummer, uh, who's to say, I don't know anything about it, but who's to say he didn't do a lot of drugs in his life and had you know cocaine toxicity? I mean, there's a million things, right? Um, name of the book, Gainer, it's uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, that's, that's the name of the book um, by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And George Lakoff is the lawyer he co-wrote the book with. What happened to common sense? Kids seem not to have it anymore. Um, I don't think anybody has it anymore. Maybe we got to teach it. Uh, common sense is not common, right? Um, <clears throat> let's see. Hi, Lizette. Uh, kids need permission and acceptance to be who they are. I'll never understand why we don't have the strength-based education instead of one size fits all, just get in the box mentality. I agree. Like it's, our education system is fundamentally not designed for unique teaching to the students' strengths and weaknesses. They're just, it has to be a one size fits all and that's no good. So we have to change that. Sir Kenneth, I'm forgetting his name. He has one of the top TED talks of all time. I had the pleasure of meeting him after a talk and talking with him at length. 
but he, Sir Ken, Sir Ken something, British guy, got a TED talk on education and how we need to make it all about playing to the unique creative strengths of individuals. Um, if someone remembers the name, Ken Robinson, was that his name, AJ? Yeah, Sir Robinson, that's, that, I think that's him. Uh, really lovely guy. Um, I, I got to talk to him for like an hour after his talk, which was unusual, a big line of people. And he, we just kind of peeled aside <laughs> and uh, we agreed so much like medicine, education, it's all interwoven. Um, let's see, Marvin says, personally, I had to learn to be responsible for myself and follow through with things. I had an anti, I have an anti-victim attitude. So Marvin, some of that is inborn. Some of that is learned. Some of that is conditioned by our mentors and people around us. I, you know, I know so many people that have a real deep victim uh, um, attitude, you know, like, oh, woe is me. And it's, you know, if just this, if just that, if just this externality had been different, if just this, it's like, dude, guess what? You are infinite possibility, your infinite awareness. Like, what the hell are you doing squandering that on victim talk? Like, it's fun to do once in a while and we fall into the habit of it, but man, that's gonna wreck your life. And, you know, people say, well, you're so privileged, it's so easy to say that. It's like, am I though? Like, I, I, I've been through the anxiety, depression, you know, the suicidality in med school. I've been through all that shit. Like, I've felt like the victim. I've played the victim. I've done all that. And I realized, well, that ain't the answer. Doesn't make me feel better. It's a cognitive distortion, which Hyde also talks about in Coddling of the American Mind, cognitive behavioral therapy. So these thought distortions that we have, overgeneralizing, black and white thinking, catastrophizing. How much catastrophizing is there during the pandemic? Okay, here's the the COVIDian thesis catastrophizing. Oh my God, if we get rid of mask mandates on uh, subways and airplanes and trains, we're gonna have a massive surge and the hospitals are gonna fill up, we're all gonna die. And then the COVIDiate antithesis um, uh, position is, and by the way, I use the term COVIDiate and COVIDian because those are like the, I, I've done a video on this. I'm not calling people COVIDiates. I'm saying this is the terminology each side uses to belittle the other um, in their hive mind thought bubbles. Uh, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, it's a catastrophe. Like if they make us wear masks, it's a slippery slope to, you know, fascism. So catastrophizing on all sides uh, of this thing. So here's a funny story. Listen to this. So um, I read uh, uh, read my morning, you know, customized local news feed this morning on Google News because I don't watch TV news. Uh, I have this feed that I've kind of curated to show me stuff I'm interested in, but not be too much of a bubble. So I get all the different stuff. And um, there was an article, 100 San Mateo High, San Mateo is a local town here in the Bay Area on the peninsula. 100 San Mateo students test positive for COVID after unmasked prom. So they had a prom, mask mandate went away. Most kids still wearing masks at my kid's school, but they had a prom and guess what? It's senior prom or whatever, junior prom. I don't know which prom it was. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of the kids were like, you know what? It's my effing, effing prom. I'm not gonna wear a mask. It's my prom. And they're all vaccinated and boosted because it's the Bay Area. And a um, hundred of them got Omicron. And it made the papers and everyone was catastrophizing. Like if they just worn the mask, this never would have happened, except that it would have because cloth masks don't do shit for Omicron. And uh, then you read towards the end of the piece, 
and it says all the cases were mild. Let me repeat that. All the cases were mild. Why is the headline saying 100 students get COVID after unmasked prom? Because it sells. It generates emotion. That's horseshit. Who cares if 100 of them get COVID? Good. They're going to have natural immunity on top of, I'm not saying go out and get COVID, but that's great. They have natural immunity on top of their vaccine immunity. And there was just a piece out in Stat News about how natural immunity is at least equivalent to vaccine immunity and may even be longer lasting. So why are we panicked about that? Why are we catastrophizing about that? I'm so glad those kids got to have their prom. And by the way, they interviewed a couple of the kids and the kids were like, yeah, I don't care. I'd do it again. <laughs> that's, that's fucking youth. That's how you, that's how you gotta be, man. Like they are low risk. Oh, but what about grandma? Grandma's vaccinated. If grandma's that worried, she can wear an N95 when she visits little Timmy. Like there are ways to take control. Now it's not perfect. It's not perfect. You know, another thing, there was an Atlantic article on people cite now, well, what about the immunocompromised or the people too young to be vaccinated or whatever? You know, like what about them? Like um, if we take away masks and we do all this and we make let society open up, what will happen to those vulnerable people? It's like taking a shit on our most vulnerable. Yeah, except that it's not. So this idea that the vaccine is not effective in those groups is not necessarily true in the way that the press had made it out. So they were looking at data. It's actually still, vaccines are still highly pr protective against severe disease, just not infection itself, severe disease. So there is protection. Those people can wear masks in public, nothing stopping them from doing that. In fact, it could should be encouraged. And so- why are we making them feel, first of all, like they're terrified for their life when they got their three or four doses of the vaccine and they're, they're still likely protected against severe disease? But yeah, some people have conditions that just put them at risk for stuff. You cannot change all of society for them, but you can educate and you can take as much risk mitigation as makes sense for that person. That's it. And why, why do I care? Why? why, why, why how hard is it just put a mask on people, just ask them to wear a mask and all that. So I feel very strongly about this, guys. Show me the evidence that those cloth masks do shit, one. So you're teaching people to act without evidence. Okay, two, don't these things have a cost? Yes, you don't see people's faces. People who are hard of hearing can't hear. I do suspect that child development may be affected when you put a two-year-old in a mask and all their teachers are masked up and all of that other stuff. Um, so these things have second order effects that are not positive, more societal isolation, um, creep of like interventions and public health creep that, so then when something really serious does happen again, public health will have no authority because no one will trust them and they'll have booster fatigue because they're talking about four boosters. This is another thing in, in stat, or stat news, the, uh, advisory committee on immunization practices it was just by like just gets bypassed by CDC. CDC's like, well, let's just give you guys a fourth dose. Why not? 50 and over. And ACE chip was like, wait, what? There's not good evidence that it's gonna help you beyond like short-term effect on infection, not severe disease. So why why are we doing that? Um, all you're gonna do is tire people out. They're gonna be like, forget it. Focus on getting people that first dose. That that's what we need, who haven't been naturally infected. And if they've been naturally infected, exempt them from mandates. Just don't even have mandates. We don't need them anymore. Um, Elizabeth, thank you for the stars. 
Um, Sarah Day says the child development aspect I've seen it firsthand is huge, even worse for kids that have disabilities. Absolutely, kids with disabilities, they are really in a bad way. You know, the masking is a real problem. And Dr. Offit was just quoted saying this, Jen King, yeah. And Paul and I agree on this very strongly. He's probably gonna come back on the show and talk about this, like this booster, 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 like what are we doing? As he told me, uh, uh, we've lost our way. I agree. We've lost our way on this. Um, Come talk to our prime minister in Canada, uh, Leslie. He is very handsome. And if I were gay, which I'm unfortunately not, um, I would consider it just for the man sparks. But unfortunately, since I'm heterosexual, attractive men just intimidate me. So I don't want to meet him. Uh, Susan Woodruff, the disinformation is causing family problems. Well, yeah, I mean, because our information ecology is fractured because you have different hive minds and groupthink and the, there's no corpus callosum connecting them. That's why we call this alt-middle, right? We're trying to form those connections to understand, well, what aspects of people's moral matrix helps them believe the way they do? What aspects of information is being filtered incorrectly? Why don't people listen to each other's ba basic beliefs and with an understanding idea and a curiosity instead of a judgmental and controlling idea and a tribal idea. Um, Shireen says, I think I said that right, I don't know. Shireen, uh, kids are deeply affected by mask wearing. They're missing the natural cues and facial expressions, particularly those kids who are neurodivergent. I, I agree, I agree, I agree. Again, I, I'd like to see the data hasn't been well studied, which it should be. That's the thing, that's studies we ought to be funding. Um, Stephanie says, hey, no, really, our prime minister is awful. He needs to watch your videos. <laughs> No comment. Uh, look, where are we? <laughs> Somehow there's still 600 people watching me. I don't understand that. It's actually, you know what? If you really think about it, is they're not watching, you're not watching me. You're actually, there's a dynamic here, isn't there? That's, these are the kind of group minds that can be instantiated by a bunch of people coming together in the present moment live doing a thing. Do you feel it? Like you can feel it. It's funny, I, it, it puts me in such a state of mind that I actually relax into this, really present state, which is hard for me to do even when I'm alone. So thank you for that, um, for better or for worse for you. Um, Blair and Carissa uh, says, hey, the ER doc said the amount of children he's seeing because of parental paranoia and fear increased anxiety and panic disorders. Yeah, the parental projection of emotion onto kids, kids are highly empathic. They, they absolutely model on parental, cues and, um, and, and and we're seeing it, we're seeing it everywhere. Anxious, so how many times you see an anxious kid, you look at the parents and you're like, oh, there it is. You know, we, we, were, at, we were at a swim lesson the other week and um, there was a mom there with two kids and they were young and they were getting swim lessons. It was cold out and the kids had to jump in the pool and they were all cold. And the one kid was like, um, Mommy, I, 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 uh, you know, um, need to go potty. And the mom was who I could feel like the neurosis from a distance was like, you just went potty. What do you mean you need to go potty again? You just went potty. And she turns to the instructor and is like, she just went potty. So I think she needs to get in the pool. Right. Am I right? And, um, this instructor was just like, and the kid was like, you know, starting to cry and stuff. And so this mom storms off with the kid to go. 
potty. Well, I mean, it's clear as day that the kid is anxious and that that nervous bladder, maybe they didn't fully evacuate the first time, or maybe they just have a nervous bladder, or maybe they just, they didn't really need to go potty, but they're nervous. The pool is cold and mom is tense. And that feedback loop of anxiety and neurotic behavior, and again, it's nobody's fault. It's just how we're all conditioned. But once we see it, then we should take responsibility. Um, it's feeding to the kids, feeding to the instructor. And I'm sitting there going, I feel this. Like, and I'm just, Dipshit McGoober, bald clown sitting here waiting for his kid to jump in. So th this stuff is real. Um, at least she didn't pee in the pool that we know of. Uh, it's tough to be immunocompromised and wear a mask still everywhere when people stare at me and say crap about taking off my mask. I'm on a MS drug that lowers my immune system. People are mean, Francis Hunter. People are dicks. They shouldn't, why? if one thing we should have learned from the pandemic is like wearing a mask is okay. You shouldn't be shamed for it. Jesus, man. That is weak. Where do you live? I'm curious. Because in the Bay Area, they shame you for not wearing a mask. Um, just pee in the pool, Rachel Mark Antonio. That's that's the that's a pediatrician for you right there. Just pee in the pool. Um, you know how they do it. Uh, parenting is tough, but sometimes you see parents and you just keep wondering why, Lizette. I know parenting is tough. It's good to start with that because that's really what it is. Dipshit McGruber, um, Stephanie. All right, so. What else can I tell you guys? Um, the the usual stuff about, hey, you should become a supporter and support our show and all of that. I think that really applies. Facebook, locals, just go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, or you can give us a one-time donation, paypal.me forward slash zdogmd. Thanks to everyone who donated stars. That's how we support all this. Like I, I turn down sponsorships and you know, very rarely I'll do one, but um, you know, I'm doing less public speaking too because I've just gotten tired of it. Um, I don't like the travel. Um, so you guys are how we do this and I have fun doing this. And if I can support my team and the show and myself and my family doing what I love, which is this kind of thing where we try to figure out, make sense of things, emerge health 3.0, find an alt middle corpus callosum that we can build together and form this kind of virtual group that shares a similar consciousness, then I'm blessed, beyond blessed. And I have you to think. So I love you guys. I gotta figure out how to end this. I think I'm gonna press, I think I'm gonna fade us to black because I can. All right, guys, oh, maybe I can. I love you and we are out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters 
and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.